Thanks for joining us at Mountainside, anywhere. We're praying that God will use this teaching to reveal himself to you in his word. Through it, may you see him more clearly, know him more fully, and trust him more deeply. As always, we are here to serve. Please reach out through mountainside.online if there's a specific way we can come alongside to pray, help, or encourage throughout the week. Let's join Pastor Dave now as he continues our study in the book of Mark. And I remember when we started to sing um, worship songs, some people would say, oh, so much repetition. But you know, God loves repetition. In Revelation 4, the beasts around the throne, they say the same, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come nonstop. So that's repetition. So anyway, but uh, what a beautiful, beautiful song to end worship with. It's so, so uplifting. So we're going to be in Mark 11 uh, this morning. And uh, I'm going to start just to read and make a couple comments on uh, Pastor Lyle is away this morning, but uh, he had preached on the triumphal entry and then mentioned it in his first uh, message during Advent with uh, Jesus' entry at birth and then the triumphal entry. But in Mark 11, verse 7, it says, Then they brought the colt to Jesus threw their garments over it, he sat on it. Many in the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him. Others spread leafy branches they had cut in the fields. Jesus was in the center of the procession, and the people all around him were shouting, Praise God! Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessings on the coming king and our ancestor David. Praise God in the highest. And so the Messiah is entering uh, Jerusalem according to prophecy. It's 483 years after the decree of Xerxes for Israel to go back and rebuild the walls and the temple, and we'll talk about that in a few weeks. He's riding on a donkey as prophesied in Zechariah 9. The people are quoting Psalm 118. This is a real Old Testament moment that the Messiah is coming into Jerusalem. Then we see the Messiah weep over Jerusalem because she was not ready to receive her king. January 14th, we're going to start a series um, on last days where the primary focus is going to be on the kingdom. And just to answer some of the questions, because there's a lot of controversy today, but there's some amazing um, books that are being written, scholarly books that are being written on the kingdom. So we're going to talk about that. Um, as we talk about the Olivet Discourse, we, we skipped over that in Mark and uh, because we're saving it for then. So we're going to spend a few weeks with that. Then what happens is Jesus comes to Jerusalem. He rides in. The next verse, verse 11, so Jesus came to Jerusalem and went into the temple. So it appears that he, the triumphal entry and then he walks right into the temple after looking around carefully at everything. He left because it was late in the afternoon. Then he returned to Bethany with the 12 disciples. Now, this verse is going to be important later in our message. Verse 11. But uh, this is, again, a prophecy. Micah 3.1, Behold, I'm going to send my messenger 
He will clear the way before me. The Lord whom he seeks and suddenly come to his temple and the, and the measure of the covenant in whom he delights. Behold, he is coming. And so this, this Messiah has now come. What would Jesus have seen in the temple? Um, well, there were worshipers who needed to offer an unblemished lamb. Uh, there were men who needed to pay the annual tax of a half a shekel. And what was necessary for that is there needed to be an exchange of money because you would bring, let's say you lived up in the Galilee, which is where Joseph and Mary would have traveled when Jesus was 12. You remember that story where uh, he stayed behind and they didn't know it. Um, so you would take the coinage of your area or the, and then you would come to a place and have to exchange it. You would also probably sell the lamb from your crop or from your flock. You don't grow them in a crop. You grow them in, grow them in a flock. But uh, um, you try standing up here without making a mistake. But anyway, <laughs> it's amazing. Um, so you might sell the lamb, go to the temple, because if you were hiking for days, uh, would you put it on a leash or you try to drive the wild animal, the crazy animal up? Up the, uh, up the long hill from Jericho to Jerusalem. And so there, it was, it's been written that there were 3,000 livestock being brought to the temple to be sold for offerings. So you would come to the temple, then you would buy land. This is what we see Joseph and Mary doing. When Jesus was born, they come to give the offering, and they only had enough to, give a, uh, to buy a dove. So uh, we see this happening. The problem was, as extortion was taking place, the middlemen were under the control of the high priest, Ananias. And Josephus, in his writing, he called the great procurer of money. A huge religious scam was going on. And so this was more like a bazaar where people were being taken advantage of. You would have to bring much more money just to buy your half shekel. You'd have to bring money and buy a lamb that was maybe bruised or a broken leg or whatever. A scam was going on. Maybe you would buy the, a good lamb, but it didn't, wasn't a, right, a proper exchange of what you sold before. So Jesus sees this, and he leaves, and he goes back to Bethany. The next day, verse 12, this is where we now pick up the text of the message today. The next morning, they were leaving Bethany. Jesus was hungry. He noticed a fig tree. In the full leaf, a little way off. So he went over to see if he could find any figs. But there were only leaves because it was too early in the season for fruit. Then Jesus said to the tree, may no one ever eat from your fruit again. And the disciples heard him say it. This is the only destructive miracle that Jesus performs. And there have been people through history that have said, this can't be in the scripture. This has to be an addition because... Uh, it makes Jesus sound so childish, right? He goes up to a tree, and the tree doesn't have fruit, but it's not supposed to have fruit yet, and he gets mad and says, You're never, nobody's ever going to eat from you again. Um, but let's think this through. Jesus is hungry, but we know he can fast 40 days, right? He's already done that. Uh, he can make food for 5,000 people. I mean, this is not about what am I going to eat, and I, I got, uh, I'm hangry, hungry, or, you know, the... And third, as creator, he knows the seasons for figs. So what is going on here throughout the Old Testament? 
Israel is often referred to as a fig tree. And this illustration again emphasizes the rejection of Israel as their Messiah. Uh, the reject, Israel's rejection of Jesus as their Messiah. The next day, they're going to see that this tree has withered from the roots up. So they've now come from Bethany and they enter Jerusalem. When they arrive back in Jerusalem, Jesus enters the temple and began to drive out the people buying and selling animals for sacrifices. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. He stopped people using the temple as a marketplace. He said to them, the scriptures declare my temple shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. Probably referring to the Gentile court. You turned it into a den of thieves. When the leading priests, teachers of the religious law heard what Jesus had done, they began planning how to kill him. But they were afraid because the people were so amazed at his teaching. And just think of the juxtaposition of what you maybe have in mind when Jesus is doing this and then he is teaching. Uh, let me read from John the same passage. He gives a little more um, expands a little bit more and it was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration so Jesus went to Jerusalem in the temple area he saw merchants selling cattle sheep doves for sacrifices he also saw dealers at tables exchanging foreign money he made a whip from some ropes chased them all out of the temple he drove out the sheep and cattle scattered the money changers coins all over the floor and turned over the tables then going over to the people who sold doves he told them Get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. And then his disciples remembered the prophecy from scripture, passion for God's house will consume me. Again, there we see this prophecy being filled. And so let's pick up Mark 11:46. So why, what is he doing? He's saying my house shall be a house of prayer, but you've made it a robber's den. He's quoting Isaiah 56, 7, and I won't read that, but uh, he's, he's using the Old Testament again there in the scripture, this Old Testament, to uh, say that this, what is happening is, is uh, not supposed to happen. Verse 17, it says, um, um, so what did it look like? He was overturning tables and chairs. He made a whip. Animals are running around, birds are flying around, probably feathers are falling down, dust is being whipped up, coins are scattered across the floor. Does this sound like a meek and gentle Jesus? Sounds like a very different Jesus. Is it a different Jesus? This is why verse 11 becomes so important because the day before he came to the temple, saw what was going on, and then went home, back to Bethany, spent the night, and came back the next morning. The point being self-control. This is not a reaction of, oh my goodness, look at what's happening, and losing control. I think that this passage is one of the most misunderstood passages in all of Scripture. And so the next, the rest of the message, we're going to talk about anger. You notice the passage never says Jesus was angry. I've looked at a lot of pictures and depictions of Jesus, and many times it's kind of red-faced and 
wild-eyed, right? Don't, isn't that what you usually have in mind when you think of this, that Jesus, if it happened to us, we would say, and then he went, he went crazy. He started throwing tables and throwing all these things around. So when I say the word anger, what comes to your mind? What is the picture? Can you see it? Is it red-faced? Is it out of control? Webster defines the English word as a strong feeling of displeasure. So is anger an, an action or an emotion? And for our purposes today, we're really going to describe the, the difference between the emotion of anger and the action of anger. And when we use the word, we sort of use them wrapped up in each other. It's very hard for me to think of anger as being anything that doesn't involve some kind of control issue, some kind of yelling, some kind of uh, throwing. That's the way we use the word. So here's the challenge. Is it possible to think of anger as only an emotion without the expression of it? In other words, a person can feel angry and no one would know it, just as you can feel sad and no one knows it. The difference between sad and sad and crying, or happy and happy and laughing, or hungry and, you know, throwing things in the refrigerator trying to find something. as just a feeling that's inside. In the Bible, anger is mentioned 200 times. There are seven Hebrew words and two Greek words. I remember the first time I heard this next statement. Anger is a God-given emotion. And I remember uh, hearing that. I could picture where I was sitting in this auditorium back in the 80s. And what we do with our anger determines whether it is sin. Now listen to what Ephesians says. And I teach Ephesians um, every year. This is going to be the first year except for the pandemic when I haven't been in... Uh, in the Philippines, I feel a little bit of regret, like maybe I should go anyway, but anyway. Um, Ephesians 4, 26 to 27 says this. Don't sin by letting anger control you. The King James says, don't, how does it say it? I've just slipped from my mind. Um, be angry and sin not. Still can't read that, but... Um, be angry and sin not. Here's the key. Anger uncontrolled is sin. I do like the rendering of the old verse, the old way of be angry and do not sin. But then I would have to explain it the way the New Living Translation says it. Don't let anger, don't be controlled by it. So anger is not the same as sin. Be angry but don't sin. Probably even better, in your anger, don't sin. But look at verse 27, and this should make you very much afraid. Anger gives a foothold to the devil. World War II is one of my favorite subjects to read, and uh, I did a lot of funerals for World War II vets. That was so much of my ministry when I first became a pastor was they were dying in our church. We had a lot of them. 
and they knew I loved it, and so they, they would spend hours talking to me about the war. Band of Brothers is my very favorite book. Um, I just love the book. So on D-Day, and I have a, have a friend, I did his funeral, who uh, had four promotions on D-Day. As he went in, he was the leader of a small platoon. By the time he was ashore, he had risen four ranks because everyone above him had died, had been killed. But Teddy Roosevelt's son was the first person to step on the shore at the landing. And they were, they had gotten, not lost, because there's the shore and here's the boat, but uh, they didn't land where they intended. And so his assistant said, uh, sir, we're not where we're supposed to be. And he says, well, the war begins here. And with the point being that until the moment the boot landed on the sand, the U.S. had no control over Europe or France. But the minute his foot landed on the land, you could say, we control that part of Europe. Does that make sense? And so anger allows Satan to put a foothold in your life. His boot touches down into your life. 1 Peter 5.8 says, stay alert, watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to destroy. The point is, that boot is there to destroy you. And so anger opens up the door for Satan to put his foot into your life to destroy it. Jesus talked about anger, the danger of it, and he says if you're angry enough that you call somebody an idiot, you deserve hell. Anybody have ever gotten mad enough to call somebody an idiot? I grew up with three brothers. <laughs> and if you curse someone, um, even worse. It's hard to think of anger without it being sinful. In fact, I remember a few years ago, the first time I kind of preached on the subject, it was, I was thinking, I really don't even know how to explain it. It almost sounds like nonsense, what I'm going to say. And then a few years ago, the, I feel like I have an, a, an understanding of this. But Galatians 5.19 through 21 and following is the deeds of the flesh. Walk in the spirit. If you don't, you, the deeds of the flesh uh, come out. And so sinful anger looks like this, the deeds of the flesh. Hostility, divisions between individuals, quarreling, arguing between individuals, jealousy, desiring another's flesh, outbursts of anger. There's flat out uh, temper uncontrolled. Selfish ambitions, self-centered desires, dissensions and unwillingness to resolve, divisions dividing into groups, envying, feelings of deserving what another has or what another, des or what another does not deserve. That's what we think of when we hear the word anger. It's clearly a destructive emotion. How many homes are broken because of anger? And I'm not just speaking about the couple. I'm talking about the house, right? 
remember when Ruthie and I were first married, and uh, I don't remember what we were arguing about, but I had a record in my, in my hand, and I went, okay, and it flew like a Frisbee and went right into the wall, stuck. <laughs> now I had to plaster the wall, repaint the wall, holes in the wall, broken doors, dented, accidents, broken golf clubs, and then broken relationships, divorce, parent-child problems, sibling problems, friends problems. Remember my brother telling me about a reunion he had attended with his, with his uh, wife's family and two brothers that hadn't seen each other in 40 years now, 80-year-old men sobbing at what they had lost because of the harsh word that drove them apart. Lost jobs, lost opportunity. Human anger is so strongly condemned in the scripture. Colossians 3, 8, now is the time to get rid of anger, rage, malicious behavior, slander, and dirty language. James 1.20, human anger does not produce the righteousness God desires. Ephesians 4.31, get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, and slander. James 1.19, understand this, my dear brothers and sisters, quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. 1 Timothy 2.8, I desire then that everyone in every place should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or quarreling. Prayer and anger doesn't mix. Proverbs 25, 8, 28. A person without self-control is like a city with broken down walls. There's that picture of allowing the enemy to get a foothold. So many more verses. The high cost of anger. I, I just keyed that into uh, uh, Google. And I have an AI uh, connection it came up with this amazing list. Physical health issues, blood pressure, cardiovascular disease, heart attacks, uh, mental health issues, the stress, the anxiety, depression, not only for the person who experiences it, but for the fallout, emotional toll, guilt, and regret. You can't be a parent without having these moments that you look back on and say, what, what a terrible thing. Relationships, the destruction of community and friends and family because of anger. Anger in the workplace, the cost of losing customers, alienating colleagues, uh, being angry at super superiors and losing your job, being angry at subordinates and losing your workforce. Anger keeping you from opportunities. The legal issues, the legal costs, property damage, injury, abuse. How many parents go through the legal process because in their anger they mistreated their, their children? Incarceration. How many deaths occur because of anger uncontrolled? The spiritual impact of your witness. I talked about that two weeks ago. Who wants to hear the gospel, the message of hope from a hateful person? 
and then long-term isolation. My mom had a brother who alienated himself from his family and his loved ones, and my mom would have given anything and actually showed up unexpected at his door in her well into her 80s, and it was a lonely, isolated old man who ended up going into a home and uh, just basically my mom would call every few months to see if he was still living. He wanted nothing to do with anybody. And who knows why. You know, anger's not the problem. It's sin. It's anger uncontrolled. So is it possible to be angry and not sin? What does sinless anger look like? Now, if you're like me, I'm about ready to blow your mind, okay? Seriously. What would the fruit of the Spirit look like when a person is angry? Well, here's my best attempt at it. Love, recognizing that God loves a sinful world to the point of sacrifice. Joy, rejoicing that my joy is in Christ and not diminished by anything else. In other words, I'm seeing something that has welled up this anger, whether it's mistreatment or whatever it is. Peace, letting God control my responses. Patience, realizing that God is working people's life as he is in my life. Kindness, focus on what is good for the other person. More on this later. Goodness, do the things I know to be good. Faith, faithfulness, spirit control must be consistently and constantly practiced as long as it takes. Gentleness, frame things in the best way to encourage the other person to receive correction. Self-control, deciding beforehand to control wrong responses. When I'm in a group and the question is asked, what is the best advice you've ever been given? And my kids are having me work through one of those books online uh, to be printed for them. And one of the questions is, what's the best advice you've ever received? And here's the best advice I've ever received. And I haven't ever changed this. Discipline your children before you get angry. Don't ever discipline your children when you're angry. Now, I can't say that I never failed at that, but I do remember times of saying, I need to calm down before I handle this. See, what that means is you don't keep warning until your children make you crazy, right? When you say, I'm going to count to three, no child ever came on one, and 99% of children do not come on two, because they know mom or dad's going to say two and a half, two and three quarters. You see, that's allowing this to escalate. I watched the children come into church, not, not this church, and the parent clearly said, don't touch the piano. And as they walk by, the kid goes, doop. And the mom just goes, And if you don't control your anger, your children will just assume that's a natural response. And some of you have to spend your life overcoming that. 
You see, we have to come to terms with this. And this is so important. It's never my child's fault that I lose control. It's never my boss's fault that I lose control. It's never the government's fault that I lose control. It's never the court's fault that I lose control. It's never the customer's fault that I lose control. It's never my spouse's fault that I lose control. And so what does it look like? And here's what I think it looks like. Anger, right anger is seen in the self-control of a first responder and people in leadership. You see, a soldier has much to be angry for. They bombed my country or my family. They incarcerated or whatever. I think of my World War II buddies, there was much to be angry for. The bombing of Pearl Harbor, uh, the killing of people in their, in their company, the concentration camps that they discovered and all of these things. But you want a soldier to be angry but not sin. In fact, we prosecute, and we're supposed to, and it doesn't always happen, we, but we are called to prosecute a soldier or a police officer that loses control. Their job is not to, to punish. Their job is to control, to incarcerate or whatever. You don't want a firefighter taking their anger out on someone or EMTs or a judge. You do not want a judge responding in anger. You do not want your children's teacher to respond in anger or government leaders. You see, we look at that list and we say, those are people we hold to a standard that they are trained in how to endure whatever it is and not lose control. And if they do, they will be held accountable. The problem is when you jump off that list, who holds you accountable? And so the word of God is there to hold us accountable. And you better have people in your life to hold you accountable because listen to me, if you're an angry person, you probably don't know it. Who's going to tell you? Right? Remember one time I sat right there and a man asked me, am I an angry person? And I said, yes. And it was, it was so shocking to the person. You see, we can build our life on the justification of our anger. A lot of times we call it something else, right? Righteous indignation. But if control is lost, to the degree Jesus says that you say they're a bunch of idiots, you've broken the standard that Jesus has in his first sermon preached, which I referred to back two weeks ago. Think about that. I look at these Christian posts on Facebook. I'm thinking of a friend that I grew up with, and he, he, he many times on Sunday morning sends me a text, you know, better be careful because you might be listening. But anyway, because <laughs> this happens to so many of us. And it's a godly person. And then his Facebook can become this venomous rant. 
about the idiots, the crazy people. That is anger uncontrolled. With no one to hold them accountable. And here's what happens in my life. I'm far more likely to lose control with Ruthie than I am with you, right? There used to be this skit that Harry Ballback, I think Dave Phelps was in it sometimes. You always hurt the one you love, the, uh, what's that guy's name? Spike Jones. <laughs> Harry with these big sunglasses, crazy. But that's stuck in my teenage heart. You always hurt the one you love. And so uncontrolled anger usually hurts the people we care the most about. We lose our control in the home. We're really saying to our kids and our family, this is how you deal with things you don't like. We lose control publicly. We indict Christ and Christianity and our church. When I was a teen, my basketball coach, next to my dad, I would place him as the most important most important man in my life. I ended up going to work for him for, for five years. He had a hot temper. He was a new believer. And he, was a, he was a scratch golfer, uh, given memberships to clubs. He played on the University of Cincinnati basketball team with Oscar Robertson. And he had a hot, hot temper. During a game, I said something smart to the ref. One minute to go, tie score, and the ref walked over to the coach and said, I want him out. I remember the look on the coach is like, you want him out of the game? Yes. So I had to sit on the bench. My parents are in the stand. It was a great time. <laughs> if you know anything about my dad. So after the game, in the locker room, the coach pulled me aside. He put his arms around me, and he got tears in his eyes. And he says, don't grow up to be like me. And that made such a difference in my life. Such a difference. So let's bring this together. What do we do with those enemies? What does the Bible call us to? And let's go to Romans chapter 12, verse 14. You understand this is not advice, right? Romans 14 is not like, hey, this would be a good idea to try this. It's like, do this. Bless those who persecute you. Now, I've met people that have been persecuted for their faith. I mean, really persecuted, tortured. I've read Fox's Book of Martyrs. I sat at a table at TTI conference with a man that had been beaten so bad three times that each time he spent six plus months in the hospital. Six months. They teach their disciples how to bless them. And not only do you bless them, look at the next, pray that God will bless them. Now, he's writing to Romans. And you understand what's happening right now in these people's lives. That's when Nero and Caligula and those 
insane emperors were ruling and Christians were being killed. Look at verse 17. Never pay back evil with more evil. Now in the Greek, never means never, and evil means evil. So never pay back evil with more evil. Never. Do such things in a way that everyone can see you are honorable. People are watching you. Does your anger allow you to have margin for careful thought? Does your anger allow you to concentrate on what is the honorable thing to do? Verse 18, do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. This was my dad's life verse for his children, and I hated the verse. I was the oldest, and so dad would preface it with, you are the oldest, and you can control things. Did you do everything in your power to control it? And my answer was always, but Dwight, or but Daryl, and dad would say, we're not talking about Dwight or Daryl. I'll talk with them later. It's just you and me. Dear friends, verse 19, never take revenge. A believer does not avenge themselves. Leave that to the righteousness of God. For the scripture says, I will take revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. In fact, revenge belongs to the Lord. Uh, about a month ago, Pastor Lyle used an illustration on Saturday night that he didn't use on Sunday morning. And it, the, the, uh, the plugging into the emotion of it was really powerful for me. So I'm going to use it. I told him I'd, that on Monday, I said, hey, you didn't use Sunday morning. So uh, when it comes in handy, I'm going to use it. So this true story, so I'm adapting it to my life, but Christmas Eve 1995, my family was together, and for whatever reason, I needed to run to the mall for something, and Ruthie said, why don't you take the kids, uh, ages 4, 8, and 10, and uh, so we're walking through this massive crowd in the mall. You know what I'm saying? It's just, I mean, wall-to-wall people, so I asked the 10-year-old to hoard the 4-year-old's hand, you know, to hold on to my pocket to always stay linked to me, call out if anything happens, and my son is kind of holding my hand, uh, which he didn't really want to do, but uh, we're walking, and there's a kiosk, and so he goes to go around the kiosk, and when I got to the other side of the kiosk, no Matthew. I kind of like, I said to Ashley, hold on to Nicole, stand here, and I ran, 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 ran like nothing. I'm, my brain's saying, how am I going to go home and tell Ruthie I lost Matthew on Christmas Eve? <laughs> like, what, what, what in the world? What happened? I mean, he was out of my sight literally for 1,001, 1,002. So I ran into a store, said I've lost my child. They initiated the whole protection thing, you know. And, and so the instruction was to walk with this official toward in the direction we were supposed to walk. And as we walked about 20, 30 feet, here came... Matthew sobbing, holding the hand of some employee of the, one of the stores in the mall. Just as a piece of advice, he said, I learned that if you ever got lost, go to a person with a name tag and tell them that you're lost. 
what a great idea. But can you imagine the relief that I felt? Where my life had chaos, and all of a sudden, in one moment of reality, I had absolute peace. This is what this next, pat, next phrase is supposed to cause that feeling. I will take revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. In fact, vengeance belongs to the Lord. The same way I felt when my son came into my presence is the way we need to feel in realizing that God is present in my mistreatment. God is present. God is my avenger. Can you connect to that emotion? So what's my job? Verse 20. If your enemy's hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. Uh, in doing this, you'll heap burning coals of shame on their heads. Shame's not in the, in the text. That is an interpretive statement, which I, I really don't like it because... I'm not trying to do anything but meet their needs as God who, if I'm doing that to do that, then I'm kind of helping God with the revenge thing, right? I'm feeding them, I'm taking care of them. In doing this, you'll heap burning coals on their heads is the way it reads. Don't let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by doing good. There's back to that foothold again. When we respond, even by giving them food to cause shame or giving them water to cause shame, we are letting evil enter into our life. God says, that's mine. Let me take care of that. And what that should do to us is bring about this amazing peace because God's got this. Now, I preached a few months back, and I made this statement. The challenge for me is I want to see God do it, right? Let him have it, God. Let me witness it. But where I have to come to is where I pray, let Jesus take it to the cross, because I want to see God's forgiveness in their life. That's the way the passage starts. Pray that God will bless them. That's what we're after, the salvation of our enemies. How does this happen? Walk in the Spirit. Now, I can't preach on walking in the Spirit, and I've done it a number of times, but let me just remind you, as I have done many times, and my list is about 36, 37, and I'll just give you a few, just a few. How do I walk in the Spirit? The fruit of the Spirit is in my life when I... Love God with all my heart. Deuteronomy 6. Seek and pursue God. Philippians 3. Practice God's presence. 1 Corinthians 3. Enjoy God's companionship. Hebrews 13. Bring every thought captive. 2 Corinthians 10. Seek first God's kingdom. Matthew 6. Consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God. Romans 6. Put off, put on of Ephesians 4. Having a mindset on things above. Colossians 3. Loving God the most. Revelation 2. Everything for his glory, 1 Corinthians 10. The point being, we walk in the spirit when our life is consumed with the preeminence of God, just as we sang this morning. 
putting God on the throne of my life, on the throne of the universe, and knowing that he will take care of it. That's how we can experience anger and sin not. The next passage, I guess I skipped over it, was the next verse in that Ephesians passage was don't let the sun go down on your wrath. The point being that by the end of the day, because we're self-controlled, we have brought it all together and placed it under the authority and control of God. And so we can go to bed with a peace of mind. Now we're talking about passages written to Christians that were suffering incredibly. We're, you know, it's not written to American Christians where, you know, we're tested, but not like it's here. This is, this is the test case. This is the case that's extreme. And God is saying, you, there will be things that will cause the emotion of anger, but don't let anger control you. You control the anger. And when you control the anger, let the sun go down with it all put away under the sovereignty, power, love of God. Let's pray. Thank you, Father. How often I fail, how often we fail. I thank you for the picture of Jesus walking around as a police officer or a soldier clearing out the space that the Gentiles were to worship. And the people rejoicing that they can come to a temple free of robbers and abuse. God, there are some people here today that I know are suffering terribly with mistreatment. And I pray, Father, that you would give them grace and the Spirit of God would work in their life to give them control in a desperate place. That you would bring people into their life, that they would seek out and lean into people that can speak truth into their life and help them work through this, to be able to hand it to you and know that you will not let a slight go unnoticed. Ultimately, God, we pray for all of our enemies to find grace and forgiveness at the cross as all of my angry deeds and thoughts are found. And we'll give you all praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen.